0: My experience was that doctors seemed to mean well, but really didn't give me things that helped as far as input or medications were all full of side effects. And it was it was health books that turned my life around. And from the whole experience, I learned that your experience in life is so, so conditional upon just how you feel and how your body's functioning and how you feel about how you look. And these are, these are big things and that improving that can happen through just information that's, that's applied well, and oftentimes not from things that people are receiving from the conventional world.
1: Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast, all about reinventing your health with safer, cheaper, more effective natural solutions and powerful lifestyle changes so that you become the CEO of your health. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder. Today we are talking to Dr. Alan Christensen about resetting your metabolism and the benefits of resistant starch. Now, if you've never heard of resistant starch, I want to tell you a little bit about it before we jump on in. So do you ever feel like you're constantly running low on energy? Well, the good bacteria in our body live on good food, just like us, so we have to treat our bodies the right way in order to get that energy that we need to live our life to the fullest. And that is where resistant starch comes into play. See, in order to understand the full impact of resistant starch in our life, we need to prioritize the importance of our gut health. See, as you know, our gut health plays a major role in our overall health, including our energy. Specifically, the bacteria in our gut not only help with digestion, but they help to supply us with multiple nutrients that we need to create energy. The fact of the matter is that when you keep your gut happy and those bacteria happy, you benefit all area of the body including your metabolism and your energy levels. So that's why today we are looking at your energy by including resistant starch into your diet and making sure that we keep your gut and your bacteria happy. But before we jump into our very real conversation about the benefits of resistant starch, energy and metabolism, I want to take a moment and invite you to reach out. Specifically about the Essentially You podcast. I would love to know what are you thinking about this podcast because we are constantly shedding truth on how to eat for your body, how to work your hormones, and how to create really powerful lifestyles. So what I want to know is are we touching upon the topics that are relevant to you personally? Now, since we started the podcast, I have received hundreds of emails and messages on social media, particularly Instagram and Facebook, from amazing women like yourself who are adopting the advice and the recommendations shared in these episodes. And I am beyond moved and grateful to hear from you. I love being on this journey with you, and I hope you can feel that. Now, you can reach out to me by connecting with me on Instagram at Dr. Marisa. that's at D-R-M-A-R-I-Z-A, or heading over to my site at DrMarisa.com episode 34, or by simply reviewing this podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast platform that you like to plug into. That way, I can continue to share these amazing episodes with more women ready to become the CEO of their health because I know that this is a message that we need more than ever so now let's dive into this real conversation about food resistant starch and how to reset our metabolism but first I want to sing Dr. Alan Christensen's praises So Dr. Alan Christensen is a naturopathic physician who focuses on hajimoto's thyroiditis and natural endocrinology. He has been actively practicing in Scottsdale since 1996 and is the founding physician behind integrative health. He is also a New York Times bestselling author of the book called The Adrenal Reset Diet and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Thyroid Disease. Dr. Christensen is the founding president of the Endocrine Association for Naturopathic Physicians And he is regularly appearing on national media like Dr. Oz, The Doctors, The Today Show, and CNN. And I do know that he has a new book coming out very soon called The Metabolism Reset Diet. You are going to want to check that out. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Dr. Alan Christensen. I am thrilled to have you here with me today.
0: Hey, so glad to be with you, Dr. Snyder. This is always a blast. We're going to have a good time.
1: (laughs) We are going to have a good time. We are are jumping into a topic that I know everyone is interested in, and that is you have really cracked the code on how to fix your metabolism. But before we jump into this, which I know a lot of people are going to be wondering, like, really, like, we can actually fix my metabolism? (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about your story and what brought you to be this amazing practitioner. I mean, this, this doctor who works with you know women and men with adrenal health, with hajimotos, autoimmunity, gut health. I mean, you really cover the gamut of healing people from the inside out, getting to the core root of the issue. But I know that you have your story that kind of inspired you to do the amazing work that you do today.
0: You know, I think like a lot of us in the health space, I got into this for selfish, selfish reasons and my own concerns, I was a kid with seizures that came from cerebral palsy, and I was really uncoordinated and couldn't do sports and whatnot. But, you know, I I read early and I was pretty content with that. But somewhere around adolescence, I became really obese. And that's about the time in life to where I started caring about, you know, how I looked when people thought of me. So it was, yeah, it was a real, real struggle. And my experience was that doctors seemed to mean well, but really didn't give me things that helped as far as. Input or you know, medications were all full of side effects, and it was it was health books that turned my life around. And from the whole experience, I learned that you know your experience in life is so so conditional upon just how you feel and how your body's functioning and how you feel about how you look. I mean, these are these are big things, and that improving that can happen through just information that's, that's that's applied well, and oftentimes not from things that people are receiving from the conventional world. So it just created a, a real passion to keep on learning, to also refine and improve my own health, but then along the way, realizing that so many others were in the same boat where they, they weren't feeling their best, they had symptoms, chronic issues, and they, they weren't getting great answers for that. You know, and in residency, I resonated so much with those who had thyroid disease and endocrine problems because they had a lot of the same issues that I had, but it wasn't stuff that could just be readily fixed by lifestyle. So it became a real passion to understand why this why this was happening and how to really reverse that and help people regain their lives again.
1: Hmm. I love that because I know that's been such a big part of your core work today. Now, one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that you are working on a new book, and specifically, probably the areas that you have found a lot of your patients struggling with is how to fix their metabolism. And I know this has been something that you've been working on for quite some time, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about kind of what are the key indicators to a metabolism not functioning properly. A lot of people don't even know that their metabolism isn't working.
0: You know, somewhere along the way, we got the ability to measure pretty accurately just how much fuel your body burns at rest, and there's there's many people who say, "Hey, I've, I've struggled with my weight, and I, I eat good food, I am active, but my I, I just can't drop I can't drop pounds, or I just keep holding on to body fat, or if it does come off, I've got to starve myself to make it happen." And in the clinic, when I started measuring the rate of metabolism amongst people, what I saw was that there's many to where it was a half or a third of where it should have been. I mean, their body was just not burning energy properly. And it didn't matter how hard they tried; they really were not getting results. And, you know, in medical school, I had a lot of a lot of sessions in which experts came in and basically trained us, you know, instilled in our brains that when people told us that they could not lose weight, that essentially they were lying; that they essentially they weren't trying as hard as they said they were. And I, I've seen firsthand; you can measure it. And there's many to where no, there's there's a problem. And until that is shifted. They've only got one of two options, one of which is to just starve, which is not an option. You know, they're going to feel miserable and they're going to be malnourished. And the other one is to eat an adequate amount of food, but still keep on having issues with the weight. So it's it's more than just good food, bad food, you know, calorie counting. It's about where's your thermostat set? You know, how is your body burning all this stuff?
1: that is so intriguing and i have been there alan where i have worked out I, i've worked out my entire life since i was like since i was a little girl actually but was in the gym as early as 18 and there were definitely periods of times kind of more of like a confessional but i have starved myself to lose weight and eating i was like a rabbit eating rabbit food and then <laughs> working out twice a day just to just to burn the fat because it wasn't coming off so i feel like i've been that person before and even as a practitioner, so intriguing, I've studied so much about nutrition, so much about how the body burns weight, and even myself have had trouble over the years letting go of that. And so could you talk a little bit about, I know we're, we we have a couple other areas I want us to focus on, but I know that this is covered in the book, but anything that people could really be looking into, like what is what do we need to dial into to kind of figure out how to get our bodies in that fat-burning metabolic mode?
0: Well, so the cool thing is that when when someone is naturally naturally thin you know whatever exactly that is you know and this is a brief aside but if we look now at those who have a good body weight but but too much body fat and then those who are heavier than they like to be and you put them together that's over 90% of the population so whatever that naturally thin thing is that's now like the fluke that's like really weird <laughs> but what's what's different in those cases is that you know, we never get exactly how much fuel we need on a given day. And we're we're always burning some fuel constantly. Our bodies, you know, it's like, like a car that you can't shut off or like the refrigerator that's always going. But what happens is that we get a lot of fuel every now and then from our food and our liver takes that fuel and holds it and then just gives it out bit by bit throughout the day to keep our energy steady. But what can happen is that the liver can get overloaded with fuel. It's got too much stuck inside of it. And when it reaches that point, any, any extra fuel you get, or even when you get normal amounts from your diet, it's got to get stored. And so there's two things happening at once, one of which is that your body is always storing things and not burning, but also you're not making energy that well. So it's really common to see fatigue symptoms. So the trick is just having a situation in which you can get that backlog out and it's, it's some combination of just more fuel than the body needs, but it's not, not just that because there's also there's a higher demand of nutrients on the liver to function properly. And in the absence of them, it can't really burn much of anything. And then the third facet to it is we've got so many environmental toxicants that build up within the body and within the liver, they also change how it makes fuel. So something about just too much fuel and, and too little nutrients and too many toxicants and I, and I prefer the term fuel because, you know, it's not even anymore about fats, carbs, ketones, stuff like that. Collectively, all those things equal fuel to your liver. They all break down to the exact same compound, and they're all used in the same ways,
1: I want to talk a little bit about the liver because what we're hearing, I know if I was a listener, I was like, okay, well, the liver is where I need to focus my attention because you're right. Absolutely. At the end of the day, everything is breaking down into fuel. Your liver is working it out. And so how do we start to connect with what's going on with the liver? How can we begin to support our liver? Clearly with the toxins coming in, that's a whole nother ball game. But even just with the fuel that we've got coming in, are there some things that we can look at on a day-to-day basis to really ensure that our liver is allocating that fuel appropriately and not holding on to it?
0: Yeah. So a couple of the biggest variables are how much of our are we consuming of protein and fiber relative to those fuel sources? Mm-hmm. So protein is a little distinct in that. When your liver gets rid of things, I imagine like the the seven dwarfs and like little, you know, picks and axes and the lantern and they're in the mine, they're digging this stuff out and they're putting this ore that they're mining into carts and the carts pull it out of the mine, you know. So the liver does that. It's getting rid of junk from your body and stuff that's stored inside of it. And it's got to put this stuff inside of packages so it can be removed, just like, you know, carts coming out of a mine. Well, those packages are, are really amino acids, primarily. They're some of, the, some of the ones that we often can't form that we have to get from our diets. So one pitfall, and people see trying to lose weight, is that if they just cut their food and take a lot, they may end up shortchanging the liver's ability to get rid of wastes by having too few amino acids. So, so one trick is getting an adequate amount of quality amino acids in the mixture. The, the other big one is is the fiber content and fiber is something I'd love to talk a lot more about because we tweet it as a thing, but it's really a category. You know, it's not so much how much fiber do you get, it's the diversity of fiber that you get. And if you get a good diversity of fiber, a nice a range of types of fiber, what happens is a lot of waste that your liver does start to send out can get trapped by fiber in the intestinal tract and taken out of your body. But in the absence of a good array of types of fiber... A lot of those wastes your liver sends out, they do not get trapped and they come right back in your bloodstream and it's got to deal with them again.
1: Mm. So real quick, um, for those who didn't know what the amino acids are, those are proteins and making sure that we get all of those good proteins. But let's talk about about fiber because I know this is a big part of your book as well and a big part of what you've been discovering. And one of the things just I want to acknowledge is that a lot of us are, not only are we not getting a variety of fiber, but we're just really fiber deficient overall.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Big problems both ways. So it's a funny thing. I think that most people fall in one of two camps, either they're just on a standard American diet or they're on one of the popular current diets. And the pitfalls about the standard American diet is that whole issue you brought up about just total quantity of fiber. You know, we, we probably need at least 40, 50 grams per day and most get fewer than 10 if they're on a typical diet. And then the other pitfall is that many many of us pay attention to you know popular diets and ideas that are in the media, and we often end up getting on, on diets that are based upon, that are defined by exclusions. It's a diet of stuff that you don't eat. <laughs> you don't eat this or you don't eat that, and that's how it's really built. And the pitfall is that there's, there's so many things that are, are should avoid, just junk food and processed food and Twinkies and Big Macs and all these non-food things. But but there's a pitfall of avoiding too many categories of of real foods because m- many categories, especially plant-derived categories of foods, they've got distinct types of fibers, and we can end up losing out on these whole swaths of types of fiber that feed various types of flora and serve various things to help the liver in its detoxification processes.
1: So this whole fad of carbs are the devil. We are we're probably shooting ourselves in the foot. <laughs>
0: Totally. You know, there's like two two completely contradictory, conflicting ideas that have converged, one of which is that everyone gets how the gut flora is important and we, we need these good bugs to make everything work. And and yeah, there's been this idea that carbs are the devil. And it's almost like let's make a beautiful garden, but let's not use water. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true.
1: <laughs> it sounds like California.
0: So <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> So yeah, there's, there's all these indigestible fragments of carbohydrate that feed our good bacteria. You know, and you can look at the whole cycle of food production to where at some point way back when we ate a lot of foods that were just minimally processed, but then they started realizing that if you, if you took grain products and took away a lot of the fibrous portions of it, they lasted longer. They had a greater shelf life. And they also had, you know, people often preferred the taste or the color or whatnot, so they got more and more refined. But the reason they had a longer shelf life is because there was a lower amount of nutrients and bacteria, things that would rot the food, couldn't really process it very well. And that's true of our bodies as well. You know, we we need to have things that feed our bacteria. They're such a big part of digestion.
1: No, I absolutely agree. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, you talked about some of the, we didn't get into the exact trends of what are going on right now, but definitely exclusion. I always call it nutrient splitting, like we're removing something, you know, in these fad Mm -hmm. diets. But you're talking specifically even, you know, about the different types of fiber. Um, And it's one thing for us to just get fiber into the system, but there are specific fibers that we really need to be consuming to fix the metabolism and help support the liver.
0: Yeah. The one that has excited me the most for the last probably decade and a half is a thing called resistant starch. And it's pretty cool. And I should go a little deeper into how we define fiber and carbohydrate to make sense what this is. So fiber is something that doesn't give us any any food value directly. We can't really, you know, we can never gain weight from it. And carbohydrate doesn't have any as a category does have food value. We do get calories from that. We do use insulin to process it. So resistant starch is kind of a kind of a category buster. You know, it has the property of giving us some food value, but it does not require insulin or other glucose-regulating hormones to process it, and it does also have dramatic effects upon feeding the flora. You know, there's so many situations in which keeping your blood sugar steady is the key to good weight and good brain health and longevity and disease prevention, and the more it goes up and down, the more, the more sick we become. Even autoimmunity or adrenal changes, they're all things that can be worsened by erratic blood sugar. And the single worst situation of blood sugar regulation is probably a thing called glycogen storage disease. That's a genetic disorder. It's kind of rare, but people who have it, I talked about how your liver holds onto fuel and then doles it out as your body needs it. The people with glycogen storage disease, they can't do any of that. And it's pretty tragic because if someone with that doesn't eat for an hour and a half, they can they can die. They can actually go into a coma and die. So so families where they've had kids that have had that, you know, no one could sleep at night because they had to make sure their child was fed every ninety minutes or so. Somewhere around the early '80s, researchers were speculating and looking at just the shape of molecules of things found in food, and you know, carbohydrates, you talked about amino acids being little chains, little pieces of proteins. So, so saccharides uh, are little tiny pieces of carbohydrate, you know, monosaccharides and long chains of those are complex carbohydrates. And they form either with just long, 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 long chains of saccharides or branches of saccharides, almost like a broom, where like a lot of different branches going out the very bottom, the fibers. And what they found is that The ones that had many branches that your body can pull off little pieces fast, but only on one piece at a time. So if you've got a long chain, you can break that down quickly. But if you've got hundreds of short branches, that takes a long time to do. And they found that there were some of these highly branched uh, called uh, amylopectin compounds found in foods and that people that consume them would require seven to nine hours to break them down. So when they started using those in the cases of glycogen storage disease, they saw that you know children could sleep through the night for the first time in their lives. It was just like this dramatic effect. And these compounds have gone on to be researched in diabetes, uh, cancer risks, also with just digestive health, and they have dramatic positive effects upon helping detox pathways and also metabolic rate.
1: So basically, in a nutshell, these particular branch, these small branch chains, they are breaking down slowly, which is stabilizing that blood sugar level.
0: Yeah. So the foods that take the longest to digest apart from resistant starch might take about 90, 90 minutes or so to reach the bloodstream. But resistant starch, what's happening is rather than being absorbed by the small intestine, it's actually being converted into fuel by bacteria in the large intestine. So there's no ups and downs of blood sugars to steady source. And it may last for seven to nine hours or greater. It's really in a class by itself.
1: That's so incredible. And so this resistant starch is really what we're seeing that's helping to stabilize blood sugar levels. I always thought about fiber as a stabilizer for blood sugar levels as well, that it would slow down. so,
0: So fiber is and it does. And so there's as a cat as different categories. So the most common type of fiber people think about is cellulose. And that's the type we see in a lot of indigestible products from grains or, or plant foods or whatnot, you know, metamucil cellulose, Yes. and that acts as a break, so to speak, I almost think about like the, the race cars that drop the parachute to slow down at the end of the runway. And so if there's a lot of a lot of cellulose in in your food, then that food will take on more physical mass, it'll just swell up and take longer to leave your stomach. So, that delays the stomach emptying, the gastric emptying. And that that does improve blood sugar. But resistant starch is working at a whole different part of the digestive cycle. Right, it's still
1: way, way at the very end, really, in the large intestine, yep. way past yep. the, the stomach, duodenum, the small intestine, which we see a lot of our nutrients being absorbed. So, this is a very different way of dealing with absorption or breaking down. Mm-hmm. That's so intriguing. So, okay, so, so that's the most common is the one we know, it's the metamucil. Tell us a little bit about the other ones, too, just so people have a distinction.
0: Well, so resistant starch is a contrast that's found in uh, legumes, uh, beans, beans, peas, lentils. Uh, and then also we'll see some of that in underripe bananas and plantains. Actually, a weird thing that no one eats, but is really good and is crazy high in resistant starch and a lot of the nutrients is banana peels.
1: Banana peels. <laughs> I hadn't ever. I didn't know people ate banana peels. Do <laughs> you know, a lot do you of eat banana peels? <laughs> I'm just messing with so, you.
0: <laughs> so a lot of cultures do, and and I've I've included them and I've recommended them for some time for people. So a couple of tricks. So you know, organic is always awesome. But when you're talking about the outside portion of a food, it's mandatory, right? Because that's where it would be sprayed otherwise. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be organic, and you can use them raw or cooked. If you're going to use them raw, then you want them pretty nice and ripe. And the easiest thing is just throw some into a smoothie and you can do with without the actual banana. But when you've got the peel in there, it's it's kind of a subtle banana flavor, but it's a real nice texture in a smoothie and it works great with a powerful blender. Obviously like a little shaker cup is not going to work, but in a smoothie it's even higher in potassium and B6 and magnesium than the banana is. And it's a real good source of the resistant starch as well. The, to cook them, Think of it almost like like okra. They're going to have that nice mucilaginous texture, yeah, or like eggplant. And then you want ones that are a little less ripe. They can still have some green on them. But yeah, just cut them up and you know saute them. We use um, some of the some of the cactus paddles in the Southwest, and they're they're a lot like that in terms of their taste and texture. Hmm.
1: I was thinking about all the countries who do incorporate a lot of plantains, like Costa Rica. Cuba. Do we have research there where we're seeing you know, p- people with higher, higher metabolic rate or they have less prone to cancer or diabetes or insulin resistance? I don't know if there is any research in there, but if there was someone who would know it, you would.
0: There, there has been data exactly on that. You're totally right. And many studies have correlated. You can look at interventional studies where you take a group and you give them resistant starch, or you can look at more so epidemiologic studies where you see populations that consume more of it and then see what happens to them and their disease risks. And those things have been factors. You know, there's a compound called butyrate and a lot of exciting data about how great butyrate is for your immune system, your gut, your liver, all sorts of things. And funny, you'll hear people talk about butter as being a source of that. And I guess it is, but I did the math on this not too long ago. And so you you can get butyrate from butter. Um, it takes about one and a third cups three times a day (laughs) of butter. So it's about 9,000 calories (laughs) for a therapeutic amount. But thankfully, what you would get from even like half a cup of cooked white navy beans is the same quantity. So there's a lot more you get from your body making it than you get from things that actually contain it.
1: Well, now that we know what resistant starch is and the benefits of it for helping to support our metabolism, I'd love to know, how are you recommending integrating resistant starch? Is this a recommendation for every every meal? And then even in that, Alan, are you recommending as well any type of I don't know what your thoughts are. This is kind of a separate topic altogether, probably a whole different podcast, but what are your thoughts around fasting? Do you recommend any fasting or a certain period between meals? What does that look like for you and for your patients?
0: Yeah, awesome question. So the the first one, as far as recommendations with resistant starch, most natural foods have some, some are just ridiculously much higher than than others. And I encourage adding at least about two servings of high RS foods per day. So yeah, legumes, plantains are great options. Potatoes are actually really nice ones too, and not sadly, sadly not sweet potatoes, but plain old white potatoes. They they lose a lot of RS when they're baked and obviously fried. Not not good for lots of right. reasons. <laughs> they're boiled, they're boiled, they're great in that. And funny thing, when you boil them and have some leftovers and then refrigerate them and warm them up and refrigerate them again, they keep making more and more of it. So that's that's a cool way to get a bunch of it.
1: So leftovers. So you have permission. <laughs> permission to do leftovers. So yeah, I was just actually doing some research on sweet potatoes and they're com- they're a completely different plant. So yeah, uh, and a lot of people don't know that. So thanks yeah. for adjusting. I was going to ask you that. I knew the answer, but I was going to have you answer that. But thanks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so about fasting, the other thing, you know, lots of lots of great reasons for that. Many can be more psychological or spiritual or just changing one's mindset and one's habits. I think it's a phenomenal We'd really explore deep into, I don't know, subconscious drives or whatnot. If you ever fasted for a little bit, it just fascinates me how much of our day, how much of our time is allocated to some type of food behavior, you know, whether it's shopping or prepping or eating or cleaning or using the bathroom. I swear it's like half of our time. It
1: is. It's either going talking for it, we're prepping for it. We're planning yeah. it. We've done so many different fasts and detoxes and, and I do a lot of I do a lot of intermittent fasting and it's it's incredible, you know, not I wouldn't call it even just food triggers, but oh my gosh, how much of our life is yeah. circled around eating? And it's crazy.
0: The times when you're fasting, it seems like your days are like 36 hours long. Like, what do I do with myself now? Right,
1: I go to bed early on those nights because I'm like, I don't know what to do, you know, <laughs> or, or read. Yeah, I, I always kind of, when we I, we walk through people through, I've watched people through di- detoxification processes and, you know, you stop eating at six or seven o'clock at night and people don't know what to do with themselves. And they're so afraid that they're going to get into something they shouldn't, you know, at like nine, ten o'clock at night. So it's just better to just go to bed.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So in terms of those who are doing it weight loss purposes, people that have problems with liver function, it it can help them in the short term, but then some are set up for regain afterwards. And here's here's what happens. So I mentioned about how the whole thing about the buckets and the mining and and the amino acids. So your liver has to have a certain amount of protein to function. It's just non negotiable. And if it doesn't come from the diet, then your body can just scavenge it from muscle tissue. And in those cases, a person may see a lot of dramatic weight loss, but if they look really closely at their body composition, they, they may be losing more muscle than anything. And the tough part is that that sets them up to have either the weight come right back or just to stay in a state to where they're lighter, but they're flabbier and they're going to have more, more health complications. So the trick that I like in terms of those who are trying to lose weight and have some barriers with their liver, or their metabolism, is to get adequate protein, but to do a lower fuel regime for a brief period of time, and then also have adequate nutrients and just a real minimal load of chemical burden, and the whole combination can set it up to where the liver gets to clear out its backlog of fuel, and it doesn't have to take away your muscles to do it.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what you're recommending for the most part, let me understand this, is that decreasing the fuel, but ensuring that you're getting those proper amino, amino acids.
0: Correct. Okay. And also maintaining the fibers so that, you know, the other thing is when you are losing weight, fat, fat is the place is like under the rug. So whenever you want to hide something in your house, you sweep it under the rug. That's what your body is putting in a lot of, a lot of fat tissue. And so when you break down fat tissue, there's a ton of toxicants that get released and start circulating in your bloodstream. And if your body cannot process that, there's data now showing that your liver will just shut down the fat loss process to protect itself. So you're talking about detox. You've got to also be taking appropriate steps, like like you teach people about, Mm -hmm. to detox during that whole weight loss cycle. So your body is not retoxifying or getting these toxicants more concentrated or in worse places or just making it all not work.
1: Yes. I mean definitely the situation is a little bit more complicated. A lot of people I always say, you know, you wanna you wanna thank your fat in a way, because they are just again, that under the rug analogy is your body is trying to support your critical organs from being damaged by holding onto that in your fat. So I think we have a clear picture. I mean, definitely. So what I'm understanding, you know, making sure that we have consistent protein. And then when it comes to those low fuels, we're talking about resistant starch. Are there other foods that you like us to to focus on? I, I mean, I know that you're a big fan of foods filled with antioxidants. I mean, are there foods that you also, you know, that you love, that you recommend to your patients to make sure that they have in their daily intake?
0: Yeah, so along with the detox process, so many of the foods that are high in in phytonutrients, and there's an important concept I'd love for your listeners to get is that I think about food as supplying like like three things basically. There's there's certain there's certain building blocks that we need, and that's that's where the protein comes in. Then we've got this fuel component, and then we have nutrients. And so the nutrients, people often think about nutrients as doing something good, and like the more we have the better. And nutrients, I think, are more like like a key to a car. You know, if the, if the key's not there, the car doesn't go. But you don't make a car into a race car by pouring 50 keys into the driver's seat. You know, if you've, if you've got the key, you're good. If It's there. It's, if it's gone, it's a problem. But more keys can actually be counterproductive. And then the other category in foods, this is also counterintuitive, but I think it's important to understand it. There's a whole lot of things in food that are actually overtly poisonous if we were to consume them in high quantities and it seems that the amounts that we get in our diet are so tiny that they help us it's almost like you want to have a good security system and if the alarm goes off every now and then you'll make sure it's got a good battery but if the alarm never went off you wouldn't check the battery and so plants have made a lot of a lot of insecticides a lot of pesticides that are naturally occurring and they've made them to protect themselves and if we could concentrate them enough they would be just full-on poisonous but the tiny amounts we get in our diet actually turn on a lot of our body's defenses and a lot of our detox pathways. And I think it's important to see it in that light for two reasons. One of which is that many, many have not understood how this works, and they've been unfortunately fearful of healthy plant foods because they have things that appear to be toxic, taken out of context. And then the other the other thing that I help this helps people weave through is the idea that we need to take these these good plant compounds and do mega doses of them. And we don't. It's not that we need huge quantities. It's that we need some because a little bit is good.
1: That's good to know. That's important. I think you're right. A lot of people are very unaware of that. And a lot of, I always say, you know enough information to be dangerous. So you read a blog or you read on something, someone has an opinion and and they just don't have the full facts and they make a decision based on that.
0: Yeah, and there's been a cycle to where you know, the things that are often outrageous or shocking or or seemingly dangerous, they can easily go viral. So there have been many people who have been afraid of of healthy, good plant foods for fear of these various compounds. And yes, these compounds are poisons. They totally are. No bones about that. But the little tiny speck that we get is really good for us. You know, broccoli is a great example. The indole compounds that we've known can lower the risk of many cancers those are, those are insecticides. Those kill bugs from plants trying to grow on that. And if we could purify that, it would be fatal. But the little specks do wonderful things for our liver and our body's own internal antioxidant pathways.
1: So take home real quick is to eat broccoli.
0: <laughs> <laughs> eat, eat broccoli. And honestly, there are no plant foods that you can buy that are going to hurt you. You know, there, there are certainly things that people can be allergic to, and there's unique cases, but a long time ago, we figured out what's safe to eat, what's not.
1: Well, and I love that you are doing a lot of research right now to to kind of overcome that fear because, gosh, all of these plants, I mean, I can't think of the cruciferous family alone. I mean, the broccoli, the the kale, the Brussels sprouts, cauliflower. I mean, oh, those are so, there's so many benefits to these foods, and people are avoiding them because they're afraid of the oxalates or, you know, so... I'm really grateful that you are addressing that. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of plant based eating. I'm like, eat plants. And, you know, people. I think people are just looking for a reason to not eat them. They're like, oh, well, I heard this thing that this plant isn't good for you anymore. I'm like, that's all. It's not true. I mean, it is true, but it's not enough true. <laughs> Oops. The very last minute of my interview with Dr. Alan Christensen got a little bit garbled. So I want to personally take a moment and quickly share his amazing gift with you today. I am so grateful to have Dr. Christensen on here today sharing his research and wisdom around this topic of resistant starch. It really gets you thinking about the benefits of starch and vegetables that may have felt like they were off limits before. I'm sure there were moments in the conversation that I had with Dr. Alan Christensen where you were thinking, huh. I didn't really know I could eat that food anymore, but learning that it's phenomenal for gut bacteria, for your gut health, and for your energy and metabolism. So I'm just really grateful that Dr. Alan Christensen came and shared that information with us. Now the generous gift that Dr. Allen has brought to us is his ultimate guide the 15 Types of Fiber. It's a great resource for understanding the benefits of fiber and how it works in the body. And you can grab this free guide by going to the show notes or by going to drmarisa.com slash episode 34. I really want to encourage you to grab it, especially if this is an area that you're still not clear on and you want a little bit more clarity. Well, thank you so much for stopping by and listening in to the Essentially You podcast. My next episode is with my dear friend and hormone expert, Nicole Jardim. She is my New York sister, and we're going to be talking about syncing your menstrual cycle with your life. Now, you're not going to want to miss this hot topic, and she just makes it feel so easy. There were definitely a lot of aha moments for me. Well, as I mentioned earlier on the show, my goal is to spread the word about the Essentially You podcast podcast. And the best way to get the word out about this podcast and all of these amazing episodes is through you. I would love to hear from you about what you want more of on the podcast. So take a moment and rate and review the Essential You podcast on iTunes. That way, I can continue to serve you and other amazing women who are ready to become healers in their own home. Until the next episode, have an incredible day.